I didn't know where the risk was. I didn't know where the threat was. I knew there was some class of threat. I just didn't know what it was, where it was. Was it remote, as it turned out to be, potentially, or was it across the road? Was it that person that was crossing the road towards me? Was it that person? Was it that person? Hello again and welcome to Insights. In this episode, Jennifer Carol McNeil, Minister of State at the Department of Finance, talks about how she's getting on in the first few months of her new role, her desire to see more women in government, and why Fine Gael will not go into government with Sinn Féin. Jennifer Carl McNeil, TD for Dunleera and Minister of State at the Department of Finance. Thank you indeed for coming into studio. You're almost three months in the job as Minister of State. How's that going for you? I'm really enjoying it. I'm working really hard trying to put my head down and learn my brief, learn everything I possibly can about it. That'll be the way I'd approach most things. So I'm trying to learn as much as I can about the detail of the legislation, about the different policy pieces that have gone before, to sit and reflect and think about, well, you know, what can I do and how can I best contribute to the work that needs to be done over the next two years or, or whatever period is left of the life of the government. Um, but I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying the responsibility. I'm enjoying um, the opportunity to contribute. I've delighted to be in the Department of Finance and I think it's really important to see more women in the Department of Finance. So, for example, for International Women's Day, we organised an event where the three ever only ministers, female ministers in the Department of Finance, all of whom had been junior ministers, myself, Ethna Fitzgerald of the Labour Party, Arvel Doyle of Fine Gael, uh, came into the Department of Finance and did an event together. We got a picture together. We visited the portrait room together. A little bit of mischief there, you might say, Sean. But um, it, it really is a stark imbalance. It really is a glaring gap. And I think you know, it, it can't be the case that only men can be Minister for Finance. That just doesn't seem realistic. And I think it's very important to see women represented on the money side of government as much as any other part of government. Why so? Why not? I mean, why not? I mean, women are half the population. We don't have a productive society unless we have the best of everybody's brains, of both genders, of every, of every you know, of, of, of all backgrounds. Um, women bring a different, their own lived experience, their own perspective to everything that they do, as men also do. And it's simply imbalanced to only have had men in the Department of Finance. It's just ridiculous. But in the case of a particular specific appointment, let's say as a minister or minister of state, surely it should be based on competence as opposed yes, to gender. Of course. Yes, of course. But then why is it the case that there have only been uh, so many men to have achieved that competence, Sean? You can't seriously tell me that only men are competent enough to be Minister for Finance or Junior Minister in the Department of Finance. Is it that all of the brains are are, are, so <laughs> are accumulated it, there, that there isn't, isn't available amongst the Was it a position then that, that you targeted, that you sought and made your case to, to Leo Varadkar? I, I made my case, absolutely. I made my case on the basis that I'd been in government and around government for over 10 years and that I had seen so many strong, brilliant women right across what I might describe as the state side of government, your Department of Justice, Department of Children, Department of uh, Education at very, very senior levels. But when I had the opportunity to work um, on the other side of government, on the financial side of government, I saw very few women either at a political level or at a senior official level. 
and where decisions impact share prices, where decisions impact exchequer figures, where decisions impact the money side of government. I personally had not seen anything like enough women contributing to the debate on that side. And I thought that was imbalanced and I wanted to try to make a contribution to make that different. And so I did target it, yes. And I'm very pleased and proud to be in the Department of Finance to do the work, not to be a woman there, but to simply do the work. How early in the life of this doll did you make your case? Uh, not only very recently, only very recently when the when the when government decisions were being um, considered. Right. Could you do the job of Minister for Finance? Yes, of course. Properly trained at the right time, but yes, in due course. Yes, of course. Would you like that job? Yes, of course. Ahead of any other cabinet position? No, but at, I think, you know, you've got to have the right training. You've got to have the right political experience to do, to do that job. And I don't see why I can't do that, having, having learned some, you know, along the way to do that. But yes, of course. We'll come back and talk about policy issues uh, a little later. But I was just wondering as well, um, what, what's your background in politics? I mean, what drew you into it? I mean, do you come from a strongly or a staunch political family? No, not really. I mean, all of my grandparents were Fianna Fáil. My mother, uh, but my parents weren't. My father detested Charles Hockey and and everything that connected to the corruption around him. Um, and my mother was always a huge fan of Garrett Fitzgerald. So when I was a child, I went out canvassing with her. Indeed, there's a picture of me at a Fine Gael Ardesh in 1984 uh, in the Irish Independent. I still, I still have the, the page. But you were a not much more than a toddler at that Yeah, I was, a t- I was a toddler, yeah. My mum was involved in Fine Gael because of Garrett Fitzgerald. And then it sort of stopped, you know, and uh, she, she was busy with work and busy with life. And I was, but we were always very interested in current affairs. We were always very interested in politics, but not actively in any party. And I think, as I've said before, throughout my 20s, I probably voted for, for every different hue, every different, different colour in different ways. But I had the opportunity I would never, I don't think I really would have joined Fianna Fáil because of the, there was such a strong dislike for Charles I in my house. But um, but I had the opportunity when in my late 20s, there was an ad job advertised in the Sunday Independent, which was legal advisor in the office of the leader of Fine Gael. And I was at that stage, I was a qualified solicitor and I was, um, I was on a PhD scholarship in political science in UCD and I was doing that. But I was just really, I was, I was enjoying it, but I was just really lonely. I just missed colleagues and I just wanted to get back and to work. Had there been any involvement, say, in Young Fine Gael? No, 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 nothing like that. I was never in Young Fine Gael. I was never in any debating society. I did nothing of any of that kind, no. So what did you do? Were you sporty? Yeah, what? I was sporty. I played a lot of basketball. I was always very involved in me, in, in music. I used to be in the in the jazz group in, in Trinity. I was in, I actually sang in the Dublin Gospel Choir. Um, I sang at the Trinity Ball. I was did I did a whole range of different things with the Dublin Gospel Choir. Um, they were called something slightly different at that stage, but I, I did a lot of that kind of thing. And I also, to be honest with you, I worked through college. Like I was in college doing Bess and Trinity, but I was working as well. I was working in CPL. Um, that's a recruitment right, firm. Recruitment company, yeah. what, business and economics. Business, economics and politics, basically. And I, so I worked throughout college, first year, second year, third year. And the fourth year I didn't work. But uh, so I was busy, you know, doing, doing all of those things. And I never really had, I had the interest, but I always found the debating stuff very funny, very humorous. But I didn't have the ability or the confidence to do any of that. And I just didn't engage in it. So your entry into politics or the political sphere was advising or an advisor to Enda Kenny. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I got the job. Um, I didn't expect to get the job. I thought it might go to somebody who had been involved in young Fine Gael-y type things and, and that, but I got it. And um, 
once I was there, I was on a team and delighted to be on a team and, you know, to have the opportunity to work with Enda, to learn from Enda, Michael Noonan, Richard Bruton, Francis Fitzgerald, Alan Shatter. These are all the people that I learned from at a very early stage in my and career. And I think at that stage, Enda Kenny might have been under a lot of pressure, had a lot of critics in the in the media and indeed in the party. And then that all led up to a, a famous or an infamous heave. That's right. That actually happened the weekend I got married, um, that, that heave. Um, but I'll never forget Enda came into my office, uh, which was just beside the front bench room. And he looked in and he sort of knocked on the door, rap, rap. And I looked up and he gave me a big thumbs up and he turned around, walked into the front bench room, fired everyone, walked back out five minutes later. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was a very, is a very strong man. I have huge admiration for the way that he looks after people and thinks about people. He's enormously empathetic, very strong politically. I think he had been hugely underestimated by everybody, quite wrongly. Um, but... You never lost the faith in him, obviously. Obviously, I never, not for a second. I thought he was a really strong political leader, really empathetic person. He thought about things carefully. He knew what he was good at. He knew to ha- how to empower other people to, to be really good at what they were good at, to get the benefit from it. Uh, no, I've always had a huge time for Enda Kenny. And you would have also been able to observe uh, one Phil Hogan at close quarters yep. at that time. That's right. I would have worked closely with Phil, but also with Michael Noonan, whom I probably worked more closely with. So Michael and I used to come out to RTE for Budget Day, for example, um, before he became finance spokesperson. And Michael and I remain close to this day. I had dinner with him not too long ago. And, um, you know, I, I have, you know, between Michael, Francis, the different people that I've worked yeah. with over the years, you know, I've, I, I feel like I've had the opportunity to observe great people at, at close quarters. But you would have seen, just coming back to Phil Hogan, what, what would your observations or your recollections of him at that time and his importance in oh, basically important. shoring up the end of Kenny leadership? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Phil was um, a fantastic political operator. He was a very strong person. Um politically brilliant, you know, knew knew exactly what was going on at all times. And uh, I think he did he did a great job for Enda and he's done a great job for Ireland in so many different respects. Do you believe Michael Noonan supported Enda Kenny in that heave? I don't know. Sure he didn't he say at the time he wasn't saying one way or the other and didn't he come out of it as spokesperson on finance at the time? What do you think? I mean yeah, you sure, must I don't have a know. hunch I don't know. I don't okay, know. Okay, he didn't tell you. And, you, and, if he did, <laughs> and even if he did, you, I wouldn't tell you. Possibly <laughs> wouldn't tell me. Possibly not. So, so not then on the we went into, uh, we went from the leader's office, Fine Gael, get into power. And then you were an advisor to Francis, Francis Fitzgerald in the Department of Children. That's right. And we set up the Department of Children, actually, for the first time. If you, we had been working, myself and Alan Shatter and Francis, on different issues like the tragedy of the Tracy Fay report in the HS, from the HSE, the need to take children's services out of the HSE. Where they were really just getting lost. I have a huge interest and in, always had a background in youth justice. We wanted to do more on that side to close St Patrick's Institution as a place for for young for young people who were in the prison system um, to change the children's referendum, which is the thing I'm still the most proud of of all of the bits of work that I've managed to be involved in. I think that's has the capacity to do the to the, the the best good. And we dealt with the Cloyne report. I remember it was the first thing I was given. When Francis and I went into the Department of Health, which children was in for a period, the Cloyne report, which 
detailed abuse and the cover-up of abuse up to 2007 and that was 2011 and how we responded to that but most particularly how Frances responded to that and the bravery and the strength that she had at that time to really stand up to the Catholic Church backed by Enda but you know it was Frances at the end of the day who had to make the right calls on media make the right calls in the Dáil and stand up and say that we are doing mandatory reporting that we are changing the culture around everything to do with this and that is the way it is and don't argue with me on it. And on the children's referendum then, uh, did you have a hand in the drafting of that yes. or what was what exactly was yeah, your role? Uh, the, in the drafting of it and in the management of bringing people with us on the drafting of that because there had been a committee report which had produced a, a, a wording which could never really have worked in constitutional terms. The words were just a little bit, It was the, the intent was there, but the words were too loose and we had to just tighten it up in different ways. And we had to make sure that we brought all of the people who had been invested in that with us on that journey. So the drafting, trying to achieve what we really wanted to achieve, to make it impactful, to land that politically among the Oireachtas, among the, the members of government but at the is, time. Is that not a job just for the Attorney General and his office? It is and it isn't. Or I mean, at the time. Yes, I but I think, you know, the government has to set the direction. The government has to set the policy, has to set the intent. There had been a draft from the Attorney General's office subsequent to the committee report, which was published just before the election in 2011 by Barry Andrews, which had been politically rejected by Francis, by Alan, by, you know, it just, it just didn't do what we wanted it to do. And, you know, you can be pushy. You can't do everything, but you can go further. You can be pushy. And I think setting the political intent was really strong. Working on the draft... Absolutely. Of course, it's done ultimately by the Advisory Council, the OPC, the Office of Parliamentary Council and the Attorney General. But we very clearly set what we wanted to achieve in that. Absolutely. What was it like working with Alan Shatter? Because you moved on to work with him at the Department of Justice. I loved working with Alan Shatter. I really did. Um, He such an intelligent, hardworking person. He was, I mean, People mightn't see this from 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 seeing him in the media or whatever else, but I enjoyed working with him every single day. He was always in good humour. He always had good word for everybody around him. He was so bright and able to cover so much work. Um, I really enjoyed working with Alan. He had a difficult time at the time, you know, shortly after... Um, you know, we were only there for less than a year that I was working with him. Um, and, you know, those circumstances are well covered. But, you know, you've asked me what I felt working with Alan and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But he, like Francis Fitzgerald, uh, he, he was jettisoned. I mean, you were working with Shatter, I think, at the time Francis Fitzgerald's departure came later. They came under intense pressure and they were both subsequently vindicated in different fora. Uh, Alan Shatter in the case, uh, in Alan Shatter's case, the courts, uh, a tribunal in the case of Francis Fitzgerald over her handling of uh, the, the, the Garda Commissioner's approach to particular legal situations, I think having to do with Morris McKay. But I mean, most people would have difficulty at this stage remembering oh, I remember precise it all. circumstances. But was Alan Shatter treated unfairly by Andy Kenny? Um, I think, you know, what's clear is that Alan Shatter, I always felt, wasn't treated fairly by the Gearan report, was never given an opportunity to contribute to that and that that's what the court said. Um, and, and he was put under severe pressure to make a quick decision by Andy Kenny when the Gearan report landed. The, but the politics of everything at that stage, like I, don't, I remember in January 2014, which is where this started. There was a Sunday Times report that GSOC had been bugged, right? That's where this started, out of nowhere. And GSOC came in and talked to the department, talked to the minister and the senior officials and and um, 
and said, look, essentially, gosh, we're terribly sorry. That's, you know, that's not really the full story and we should have contacted you and so on, so on, so on. And then the story sort of changed when they were evolved or was slightly different than when they went into committee two days later. And a narrative took hold pretty quickly that Alan wasn't, you know, being straight about what he was being. And it, it, it just simply wasn't true. And all of that has shown to be the case. But what happens is that you get stuck in a political vortex and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And sometimes, you know, as we've seen again and again, the only way out of that vortex is is for it to end. It doesn't mean it's fair. Like what happened to uh, Francis Fitzgerald was the same thing. And these political vortexes sort of move away from the facts of anything, the reasonableness of anything, and it becomes its own self-fulfilling prophecy when journalists, you know, like, so your, like you, yourselves, decide you just, that there's a head to be had and, and we're going after it, you know? Yeah, but I mean, like there are people in positions of power, authority and in a position to take a decision. A Taoiseach doesn't have to fire somebody or demand a resignation. That's true. And um, that's true. But, you know, I'm, I'm not going to comment on Enda and Alan and that. That's a matter for them. Um, but I do think that it was very clear that Alan, uh, Alan's position, what he did was, you, you know, overall that, that, that he was vindicated in the courts. He should have been given an opportunity to respond. But look, it's, it's, it's a long time gone now. What I've learned from it all is that, and, I've, and, and you see it again and again recently, that a political vortex can develop and it sometimes is divorced from, you know, what you might perceive as as balanced, fair, reasonable. Sometimes those things in politics don't matter in the way that they apply in other in other walks of life, in other employment situations. You also worked as an advisor, I think, to Owen Murphy when he was at the Department of Housing. And again, he departed politics in, in different circumstances. But, you know, he was a high flyer. Uh, he was in the cabinet. He got a job from Leo Varadkar after the change of leadership in, I think it was 2017. He got re-elected in 2020, didn't get back into the cabinet because there were fewer places, didn't become a minister of state. And then perhaps out of disillusionment, left politics. Um, it's a really, I mean, Mrs Thatcher famously described it as a cruel trade. Um there's certainly a lot of brutality about it, isn't there? Oh, look, politics is a contact sport, don't you think? Um, there's no point in being coy about it. Uh, it's not a straightforward it's not a straightforward career. But for the opportunity that you do get while you are there, it is an extraordinary opportunity to do things. And you will, I always said, um, and I really had this experience working with Francis and Alan in particular, that you can do more in government in six weeks than you can in six years as, you know, on the outside trying to knock in. You can't do everything. You can't get it all over the line, but you can do extraordinary things like getting the children out of St. Patrick's Institution, like you know, totally changing the legal professional regulatory system, like changing the constitution in relation to marriage equality, like getting all of the hard yards done that we did before that on the Children and Family Relationships Act. These are great pieces of work that a whole group of people did collectively together. And if you only got three years, four years, five years, you can still get so much work done in that period that, okay, fine, it does end and it does end quickly in many cases and it can end brutally in other cases, but it was so worth it. So worth it. But did watching and observing those, uh, if you like, falls from favour, um, did it may maybe make you stop and think about the merits of moving from being an advisor to being a player? Well, I hadn't really ever considered being, as you describe, um, as you describe a player, as a participant in any, in, any of, in any of that. It had never really occurred to me to do that. I was perfectly happy to work in the background. I was perfectly happy to support other people in achieving policy goals that I thought were good, that I thought were important. Um, and I'm very proud. You know, a lot of the work that I've been involved in 
that I'm most proud of actually predates me becoming an active participant in electoral politics. And there are numerous instances of luck playing its part in political careers. One can think back as far as uh, Liam Cosgrave becoming Taoiseach by, by virtue of the, um, the the bombs going off in Dublin, which saved him as leader of Fine Gael. John Bruton became Taoiseach when everybody thought he was a goner and that Bertie Hearn was going to mend the fences with Dick Spring. In your case, there was an, a serious element of luck in the way that Maria Bailey came on stock as TD for Dunleary. She was dispatched uh, from the ticket and there was an opening for you shortly after you had been, been elected a councillor. Well, as you say... Um timing and events are very important. I mean, for example, I was talking earlier about Michael Noonan becoming finance spokesperson in circumstances where, you know, he was perceived to have been written off and Richard Bruton was going to become Minister for Finance potentially and that didn't happen. Enda Kenny himself scraped in, I think it's fair to say, in 2002 in the general election and, you know, wouldn't have become leader otherwise that he didn't win the election in 2007 when the circumstances were already more than set for what was going to be a major crash, a public finances crash, if not a, if not a banking crash. So, you know, it's, you know, events are always at issue in politics. So we've just we've just been discussing all of that. So it, it, it does happen. Then you found yourself um, within a year, I think, of being a councillor, several months, maybe nine months, uh, contesting a general election. What emerged subsequently um, was that uh, you were being harassed by somebody at that stage. Um, I mean, elections are difficult enough, maybe first time elections, even more difficult. This was all going on. What are your thoughts, your reflections on that? Because, you know, a man was subsequently found guilty of harassment. Um, I remember the director of elections saying to me, you know, a local election is like playing on the back pitch in Donnybrook, but a general election is like a Heineken Cup final. You know, that's the difference in in scale. And it was a brilliant uh, bit of preparation in many respects because you've really got a the scale of work that in a general election is simply extraordinary as, as, as anybody who's been connected to somebody doing it knows you work all day, every day. You try to sleep and you do it the next day and the next day. And every interaction is important. Every time you try to connect with somebody by looking them in the eye, every time you stick out your hand and somebody might take it, somebody might take it, mightn't take it. You offer someone a leaflet, they might take it, they mightn't take it. You know, every interaction you're trying to connect, trying to be known, try to Try, try to help people. People can't vote for you if they don't know who you are, you know, and they and they tend to like to vote for people whom they've met. So you're trying to reach out and connect. And what I noticed was, um, you're right, there was uh, uh, some instances of, you know, of difficulty for me during the general election. Um, and, you know, I didn't want it to impact how I engaged with people and I tried to put it out of my mind. But it was a material thing that had to be managed and dealt with as well. You said in court, I think, that you had a cold sense of dread every time you went out campaigning. No, what I said was that um, when I, in relation to looking at my phone, because that's where the the contact mm. was coming. So, you know, when you pick up your phone in the morning or the evening um, and, you know, you see what's there or what isn't there. And it's, it's in anticipation of that. But I think that sort of sense continued for a while because, you know, that sort of translates with the, social media abuse, you know, mm-hmm. you could, that can come at any time. And so you've got to learn to block and mute and turn different things off so that it stops interfering with your life. But um, no, it wasn't about going out campaigning. But what I, what it, I remember standing out, for example, outside the Frascati Centre one morning where there was a particularly difficult video that I'd gotten. And what had made me nervous, I think I said in court, was that I didn't know where the risk was. I didn't know where the threat was. I knew there was some class of threat. I just didn't know what it was, where it was. Was it remote, as it turned out to be, potentially, or was it 
across the road? Was it mm. that person that was crossing the road towards me? Was it that person? Was it that person? And that the, the trouble with that, Sean, is that it impacts on what I do, you know, on your engagement. It impacts on sure. your persona. It impacts maybe on how you come across and that's not what you want. Did you feel it necessary or did you take steps to have somebody maybe effectively getting getting protection or somebody Which to that, keep an eye on. We do that anyway. I mean, like the, during an election campaign, I, I would never be on my own anyway. So that was in place in any event. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it subsequently emerged and it's been a matter of public attention in much more recent times. Uh, there was a meeting between uh, Dáil deputies, women TDs and senators with the Can Corla because you were by no means the only one who's perhaps more severely than a lot of others, but who's been subjected to this kind of abuse. Well, that's right. But I think, you know, we've got to moderate how much we talk about it as well relative to how impactful it actually is. You have some very serious events and incidents like what happened to Anne Rabbit and Kieran Cannon. Obviously, my situation resulted in a court process, but you've got to put that in context context with the rest of the job. These are serious incidents in themselves, but they don't happen every day. They don't happen all day, every day. Um, The risk is present and it has to be managed. But like, I do the job anyway. I'm glad I do the job anyway and I'm not giving it up because of these instances for, at all. The only thing that's going to make me give up is if the people in Dunleary decide they don't want me, which is up to them, you know, perfectly. You know, that's that's their choice, but it isn't going to be some fella on a phone. Yeah, I think Holly Cairns, the newly uh, elected or at least elevated leader of the Social Democrats, was making the point that if she had known in advance the level of abuse that she might be subjected to, she would have had second thoughts about standing for election, but is glad that she did. Um, so it's very much a factor in, in people's consideration. But I think the way to handle that is to be really honest with people. Um, really, I'm trying to bring more women into politics. Politics, and I feel that this dialogue doesn't help that. And I want to be honest with them or, and, or men and say, look, it is difficult. These are the challenges. <clears throat> Let me be very clear and direct with you about what they are. This is how to cope with it. This is how to manage it. It'll probably take you this long to sort of internalise your reactions to to, to internalise, you, you know, how to, how to process it. Um, and, but to go in expecting it. I think the really hard bit is when you don't expect it and all of a sudden, you start questioning yourself, you start questioning, you know, all of the different, you know, it, it, that, that's much more difficult. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, we never want to pull up the ladder behind us in any way. You want other people to come and follow you. This conversation, I worry, pu- does that, pulls up the ladder and says, no, it's too hard. You can't do it. That's just not true. It's not that hard. You can do it. And there are difficult elements and I'm going to help you manage that and get through that because I want more women, I want more people to come and do this job as well. We need them to do that. This bit needs to be managed. I hope that it's transient. Like it wasn't like this five years ago. I hope it's not like this five years from now. And I hope it doesn't put people off participating in what is one of the world's greatest democracies. And as you fought that winning campaign, as it turned out, you got elected in Dunleary, you had another um, issue to contend with. And that was the your, your young son, who I think was at that stage, maybe four or five years of age. And uh, he had particular needs at the time and still does. Well, yeah, I mean, by, that's a that's an all day, every day thing, um, Sean. That's not a during a general election thing. But uh, like, I mean, I have a son that has um, long term health issues and has all, you know, has had since uh, since he was a baby. And that's just something that just needs to be managed day to day. So whether I'm in the Department of Finance, uh, County Councillor in Dunleary or wherever else, that's 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 not a thing that's going to change. And is it something, though, that maybe helps you get an insight into the challenges and the problems and the issues facing some of your constituents and a lot of people, a lot of parents, a lot of families around the country? Yes, absolutely. And I think um, my experience, it informs my work very considerably. Um, 
it, I, you know, I, I understand when I'm on the door talking to somebody who has, who is a carer, who has a child with, whether they're extra medical needs, extra support needs, um, I actually understand that uh, in ways that, that possibly other politicians don't. I actually understand what it's like in neonatal intensive care units, in children's hospitals. Um, I know what it's like to, to sleep in different places. I know every part of most of the hospitals and um, it informs everything that you do because, and that's why I'm saying you bring your life experiences. But I hope that I've tried to, without dwelling on it, I hope I've tried to use my experience in my work. So for example, I would have lobbied Heather Humphreys very considerably to change the means test for the carer's allowance. Not something I ever applied for or got, I, I want to say, but it's just that I know how impactful it is. And she did. And she made the biggest extension on that in, in, in 14 years. I have talked about the costs of children in hospital and worked with Children in Hospital Ireland. Myself and Councillor Vicky Casserly, whose son also spends a lot of time in hospital, um, talked about the, I've met parents on Zoom from all over the country who, you know, spend a lot of time in children's hospitals and the impact, the practical effects of that and trying to work out how to provide supports to them. They should be aware that they can get the additional needs payments. But one of the things I'd like to try to do is put an intrio or a social welfare desk in the children's hospital to make it much easier because for parents while they're there. Because if you can imagine when you're there, you have the costs of potentially extra childcare, you know, for other children, for uh, overnight accommodation, food, parking, all of these things. And the food in the children's hospitals is dreadful, like really dreadful. Um, you know, it's, it's just not. Anyway, hopefully it'll be better than the new one. But when you're there, you have to stay with the child and obviously that's much, much more difficult the younger the child is. Your All your attention is on caring for the child, sleeping on the, you know, sleeping on the little couch, trying to manage yourself, manage the child, manage the health needs, interpret what's being said, interpret what's being said by the doctors, making sure that the child gets what they need at the different times because sometimes you do need to manage those things in children's hospitals. The very last thing you have time to do is head out to a social welfare office and making it an application with a community welfare officer. Like, it's just unreal, totally unrealistic. And I can assure you that the minute you get out of a children's hospital, you just want to go home and forget about it as quickly as possible. So there's no space for parents, maybe, to actually access the supports that are there available for them. And sometimes I think the state could do better by taking a step towards people when they need it, at the time that they need it, rather than working for itself. Do you it's know a, what I mean? It's a, it's a, it's a subtle change, but it's a, yeah, I think it's, it's a, a good one. It's a very interesting suggestion you make and a very practical and useful one. I mean, should people have to wait until the new children's hospital hospital opens before so, a step like that intro I've desk just, is I've spoken is to, to Stephen Donnelly and to, and to Heather Humphreys about it. And I mean, I, they're qu- quite open to it. And I think um, I, I, my, it's my bad. I haven't followed it up quickly enough with Eilish Hardiman and others um, and that's just I'm She's sorry the chief just, executive that's right preparing for the new hospital that's right but um, but I've been very clear around you know we've done tried to do a lot of social media videos around it and so on I, I don't believe that there's a difficulty I think people should be provided with information it is there it is possible uh, and uh, it seems straightforward to me well, you're now, as you say, in a position to achieve things. Uh, being a Minister of State, you're, I suppose you had to hit the ground running pretty quickly because you've got a piece of legislation you're putting through the doll to do with credit unions. I suppose the bill, a lot of the groundwork was done by Sean Fleming. Right, right. And now you have to get it through the Oireachtas. Um What other things do you see as being important and achievable, say, between now and maybe the next two years before the next election? Well, 
I mean, I have three areas of responsibility, credit unions, insurance and financial services. And on the credit unions, getting this legislation through is important because it will open up what credit unions, sorry, it will open further what credit unions can do in terms of collaborating with each other to provide mortgage products, to provide current accounts. Um, I would like to see a situation that no matter where you lived in Ireland, that your local credit union, you could either get the services that you wanted or be referred easily to another credit union, but not be excluded by virtue of where you happen to be in the mem- and, and the membership of, you know, what your credit union offers or doesn't offer. So that's really important. The credit unions have about 20 billion euros in assets and only 5.5 billion of it is lent out. I think that can be easily, you know, that can be doubled. And you're talking about productive use of members' money for retrofitting loans, for SMEs. They also, they, they already do very strong agricultural loan products, but also mortgages as well. Um, and there is a need for a community bank, a public bank, and we have have this really strong credit union network that we can do, you know, that, that we can really make work in its most productive and effective way. And so we get the legislation through, but then it's a really about empowering and supporting credit unions at every stage to have the confidence to take those steps forward, to make sure that they're having the right, you know, conversations with the central bank, with the department, and really just helping them take the next steps forward to, to deliver that. So I think that's... On insurance, um there have been changes, there have been reductions in the kind of awards being made for personal injuries and so forth. But yet, and I think this point is regularly made, we're not seeing the benefits being passed on to the people who are trying to insure their cars. That's not actually the case. The re- reduction in premiums is down by 46% since 2016. It even came down 10% last year. So though there has been a reduction, I've seen it myself, but that's what the central statistics show in relation to it. Where I have, um, and also what we've seen is more people taking the PIAB awards, the Personal Injuries Assessment Board awards, which is really important because we have implemented a very significant programme of reform. It has reduced has reduced premiums. But what we need to make sure now is two things. One, obviously we're seeing a certain amount of inflation in relation to labour parts mm. and so on. We need to try to manage that. We do expect inflation to come down over the year. But the other thing is then making sure that the benefits of the reforms that we've made stick and I need to be a little bit careful because the Supreme Court decision pending in relation to the judicial guidelines. But I have a very clear view that a good body of work has been done and we need to make sure that that can stick and really not drift in the way that previous reforms, previous successful reforms then drifted back. And that is a really strong institutional focus of mine to make sure that those the, the benefit of those reforms stick and continue to improve. Going back briefly to the uh, situation with the credit unions, y- you have, I gather, this idea that the credit unions can play a role in identifying situations of coercive control. Oh, yes. Um, what are you getting at there? And in what way do they uh, have insights maybe that the other finance, financial institutions might not? Well, all financial institutions, but the credit unions happen to be under my remit. So, um, I mean, I did a huge amount of work on domestic, sexual and gender-based violence from before I was elected a TD. It's a very strong interest of mine and it has been something that I think the country has been very interested in over the last number of years. Um, And we have a whole of government strategy in relation to reducing the incidence of domestic, sexual and gender-based violence. And I suppose when I went to the Department of Finance, I brought that experience with me. I brought that interest with me. And in looking at the credit union movement, I was aware that financial abuse is a is a really important part of coercive control. The abuse of another person by controlling their finances. Elder abuse is also a big part of that. And the credit unions are community-based, 
but but this applies really to any financial institution. But you know, they will see instances of financial abuse. And so I started to ask different people working in credit unions or the credit union managers, "Is this something that you see?" And they, of course, it is absolutely. Maybe not everybody, but you know, there are there are several you know examples, instances that were recounted to me in a very short period. Give us an example so, or two. What well, kind of things were people seeing that raised a red flag? Um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't really want to do that. If that's if that's all right, but what you what you can see is perhaps people being persuaded to move money, persuaded yeah. to withdraw money at certain stages. Perhaps um, they're being come come in with the same person all the time. You know, there's you know, it's about coercive control is about manipulation. It's about control. It's about patterns of behaviour. Um, so what do they do? Because the, the, the relationship between credit union or institution and client uh, or customer is, is, is strictly confidential. So how do they deal with the problem that might arise while respecting confidentiality? So what we're going to do is they, for the first and most important thing is around awareness, awareness of what financial abuse is and how it's part of coercive control. So I am meeting Women's Aid, Safe Ireland and Men's Aid, I think next week, if, if, if not very shortly thereafter, to talk about their experiences in dealing with financial institutions. Women's Aid, for example, have done training with at least with some credit unions and other financial institutions. And the first thing is about identifying being able to identify and support. Maybe somebody comes in and says, look, you know, indicates that they're not comfortable and that they need more private space. Maybe there's a way of linking in with the protective service units that the Angarda Siakona have set up all around the country. But I think what we do is use the bill that we happen to be putting through as a moment of reflection to talk to for the first time in the Department of Finance to bring the domestic violence NGOs in and say, look, we've got the credit unions here. Tell us about your experience. How can we do this better? Is it simply about training staff, training directors? That's, I mean, there's close to 4,000 people there. That's about training people right across the country in relation to financial abuse. That in itself changes awareness in relation to it, changes it culturally around it. Then if there's something more structured that can be done in terms of linking with protective services units or knowing what the referral pathways are to that, that can provide support to people well and good. You're quite right to highlight confidentiality. But so much of what the government is trying to do is change the culture around domestic, sexual and gender-based violence. The first and most important part around that is awareness. Financial abuse is a part of coercive control. We have thousands of staff members of credit unions, thousands of voluntary directors. We can impact whole communities Mm-hmm. If all that we did was increase awareness in a structured way. And I think that's one of the, you asked me about the value of different people coming into the Department of Finance. Maybe that's, maybe that's one of those, of those pieces is bringing that slightly different perspective or that slightly different set of experiences into what is the same body of work. As Minister of State at the Department of Finance, you find yourself, say, doing um, questions to the Minister and you, across the floor of the doll, you face some fairly serious operators, particularly on Sinn Féin. I'm looking at people like, or I'm thinking of people like Mairead Farrell, uh, Pierce Doherty, who's as tough an operator as you're likely to encounter. How have you found that those kind of exchanges? It's absolutely fine. And I hope that, I suspect that Pierce Doherty finds me a tough operator as well. Um, I quite enjoy working in the doll. I quite enjoy listening to everybody. I totally respect everybody in the doll and the mandate that they have and the perspective that they bring. And I enjoy listening and engaging and I'll point out but where I disagree as well. You, you, I think, have a record or track record of being, particularly where Sinn Féin is concerned, of being combative. Um, I mean, one only has to trawl through your press releases and you uh, have you know, drawn attention to various things, whether it's the donation by uh, Jonathan Dowdle to Mary Lou MacDonald uh, to... 
I think you put out a tweet fairly recently uh, saying Sinn Féin weren't fit to run a sweet shop, let alone the finances of the country. I mean, like that's kind of almost provoking trouble or provoking a reaction? Um, well, I'm responding to the different issues that have been raised. I mean, if you have, and uh, we can discuss Jonathan Dowdall, I'm aware there's a, a court case there ongoing and it will be concluded soon. But if you have questions to answer in relation to your finances, then come into the doll and answer them, which is what Fine Gael is trying to give Sinn Féin the opportunity to do this week. If Sinn Féin can't get any of their election returns correct the first time or the second time, then perhaps they, they yeah, can't. But they, they dispute some of the um, well, conclusions the drawn by, for instance, a Fine Gael, uh, supporting uh, actuary or accountant. And uh, it's kind of seen as Fine Gael trying to get in its retaliation for the embarrassment that Pascal Dinner, who had to endure in think recent so. I times. Think if, you, if you look at the, there's, there's straightforward questions to be answered in relation to Sinn Féin and their own election returns and their finances. There are, um, that was uh, analysed by an independent auditor in a very, very significant Irish Times article as well, who points out multiple difficulties difficulties in relation to it. So come into the doll and explain it and account for it and answer questions in the same way that government deputies have done. The precedent is there. Sinn Féin members have come in and made personal statements before. If you want to be transparent, if you want to be clear, then come in and do that. So how do you view the prospect of perhaps working in government with Sinn Féin? Well, it's not on the cards for Fine Gael anytime soon. Leo Varadkar was saying in the Two Tribes documentary that he would resign from the party uh, before he would lead the party into government with Sinn Féin. Is that a view? Would you feel as strongly about it as he would? Fine Gael and Sinn Féin are not going into government together after the next election or any time that I can imagine until their policies are very considerably changed and until they are a more normal political party. We have nothing in common with Sinn Féin in relation to the economy. We are a pro-jobs pro-enterprise economy, Sinn Féin's policies would damage job creation in this state, do nothing to draw inward investment into the country. We want to see people be able to own their own home. Um, We don't believe that home ownership is only social housing. People would like to buy their homes. Sinn Féin make no provision for that in any of their housing or their budgetary documents. They are only interested in, the only thing that they put forward is social housing on public housing, on public land, which is not enough. We do that, but we do more. So we don't have anything any policy compatibility You can whatsoever. say that but I mean I, I've been I can say around. that I can I, say that I've, I've been knocking around long enough to remember interviewing Peter Barry the late uh, great Peter Barry I think it's fair to describe him certainly for his role in the Department of Foreign Affairs around the time of the Anglo-Irish Agreement on Morning Ireland after the 1992 election saying no way would Fine Gael do business with uh, the Workers' Party well they had transmogrified themselves into Democratic Left because of their policies because of their record uh, because of their associations with paramilitarism back in the day yet before that dull term had ended they were in government as part of the rainbow with Prunchius Rossa and John Bruton getting on famously Okay and you're saying that do you think The point I'm making after- is that what we need to do is look at the numbers more so than look at the policies. If numbers dictate or indicate a certain form of government being formed, well, politicians find a way of making that happen. The numbers at the moment dictate that there's support for the government to be re-elected um, between Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Green Party. So the numbers there are that the current government can be re-elected and can continue to offer a strong centre government that's pro-enterprise, pro-European, which of course Sinn Féin again have questions on, and 
really about providing social services on the back of a strong economy and the economy has never been stronger. So that's what the numbers show at the moment. That's what I'm going into the election on is Fine Gael's position on that and how Fine Gael can make the best contribution to a strong economy, maintaining a strong economy and protecting it for the future and making sure that we have the finances But surely the everything is possible with negotiation in the aftermath of an after election. the next election to have a Fine Gael Sinn Féin government. Our policies are far too different, quite apart from any of the other issues that I personally... And they might have, have a difficulty with. working with you, in fairness, that might be felt just as strongly. Well, I think I heard Louise O'Reilly on television last night saying that they they would talk to everybody. Our view is that our policies are far too different. We can continue to talk about this up to and after the next election, but the outcome isn't any different, Sean. They are far too different. We see a centrist, centre-right government being the best option for the country to maintain employment, to maintain the strong economy, to be able to provide supports to people. You were saying earlier in this interview that you can do so much in six weeks in government that you wouldn't do in, I don't know how many years uh, in opposition. Now, again, if you have the opportunity sharing government with another party, albeit one with different outlooks and policies to your own, you can find enough common ground to implement some of your own ideas. And that was the case with the Fine Gael Labour government, where there was very strong common ground on many of the social di- on, the, on the social issues and worked very well together. But Sinn Féin and Fine Gael are direct opposites when it comes to job protection, uh, drawing inward investment private home ownership, they are far too different. And it is not a question that is being presented to the electorate. Right. Um, and Sean, there's no, no votes cast yet. So let's, you know what I mean? Everybody can present their case. But I think there's a really strong case for re-electing the current government. Right. And that, no doubt, is, a, is something that's going to be fought out uh, on the airwaves, on the doorsteps. Talking about on the doorsteps, I mean, are, do you find, do, do, would you describe yourself as a natural campaigner or does it take an effort? Or how, how do you view that? Um... I think I've learned over time how to to try to. I mean, I'm I'm I, I love to talk to people one on one. I remember everything about the feel of the doorstep, of the feel of the conversation as I drive through my constituency. I remember that. Um, the lady in there has two children and her husband died there three years ago and she planted that tree across the road for him. And I remember that in that house, on actually on your road, um, there's the man there and he lives with his mum and she's annoyed because she only gets the half pension. And in that house, so-and-so. I can't always remember their names, but I know what the feel of the house was like and I know what the issue that they raised with me was. Um, and because I am genuinely, genuinely interested in what they're saying to me and how that feels and whether I can be helpful or whether I can't be helpful. And often even simply listening makes it a really and, strong and what connection. what about public speaking? I don't know if that would have, is something that would arise. The old days of, you know, sort of church gate speeches and, and the backs of lorries. It tends not to, no. And mm. I don't think I would be minded to do that. I can't imagine that if I was walking around O'Leary that I'd want to listen to me. So, <laughs> do you know what I mean? If I was not running in the election, so I don't think I'm likely to do that anytime so soon. So you're not going to borrow John Major's <laughs> idea of a soapbox or an orange box so. or whatever I don't, I, I don't stand think, up outside the town hall or the old county I don't county think hall. it would be my personality. I don't think it would be my personality. Getting re-elected, obviously, would be the first requirement. But how do you see your future? What are your your, your ambitions personally and politically? Um, I'd like to be re-elected by the people of Dunleary. I think that would be an even greater honour than having been elected in the first instance, to have been tried out and to have had to work for them and to be re-elected, to my mind, would be the best thing that could happen for me. And 
It used to be called the Premier Constituency uh, in Fine Gael headquarters. There was a time when routinely Fine Gael would return three out of five seats. I'm going back to the 80s now. Uh, and then you had the low point, the absolute low point, I think it was 2002, when no Fine Gael TD was elected. And it's a different story now. I mean, there was a time, I think, there were three because one of them was the Count Corla. And then you had Maria Bailey and um, the previous minister, Mary Mitchell O'Connor, and then... Okay, you're the, the sole representative. I mean, presumably, th- it, it it should be achievable that you would have a running mate elected as well. Um, I I would I would absolutely love that situation, absolutely. But I take no vote for granted. As far as I'm concerned, I start with zero votes. Um, and I will do everything I can to try to make the case for Fine Gael for me and for my running mate. Um, but uh, you know, I have been working there now for the last number of years, and I would hope to have the opportunity to make the best case that I can for me and my running mate. Uh, but you know, there's no votes cast, and I would take absolutely nothing for granted in any way and go out and make my case and hopefully be heard. And thereafter, um, presumably your your ambitions would at least extend to being in the cabinet as a as a senior minister, if that's possible. Um, I think it's most important to get re-elected, see what happens with the government and see you know, what is what is going to be the formation of the next government. As I said, I think there's a very strong case for continuing to have Fine Gael, uh, at the front of government to maintain the job success, the economic success that we've had and what that does for the country. I would love to participate in that. Of course I would, absolutely. And some profiles and uh, some writers have described you as somebody with enough ability and, and smarts, if you like, to be a leader of the party in due course. I think, um, you know, I, I find that question sort of funny because you can't answer it any way that, you know, that, that, that works. I never intended really to become a TD and I'm delighted to be a TD. I want to be ambitious um, for myself, for my party. But how do I say it? Whether or not I have an ambition to be party leader or minister for this or minister for that, I'm never going to say no. And I'll tell you why. I might want to do well for women in politics. I want to do well for women generally. One of my jobs is about enhancing diversity at the top levels of women in finance. So the moment that I start limiting ambition in any way and saying, no, I'm not interested in this or no, I'm not interested in that, I limit every, you know what I mean? I, I, yes, I, I hold to, all of that. To, to, to translate your ambition into reality, you have to, I suppose, do certain things like you know, go out and garner support. I mean, how do you get on with your rural counterparts, for Very instance? Well. Um, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, would you have a lot in common other than membership of the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party with somebody set like Michael Ring? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Of course I do. I mean, I get on really well with Michael Ring, always have done. Brendan Griffin, Patrick O'Donovan, Tim Lombard, Garda Hearn. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know what perception there is of me that I live in a, you know, I don't know what I do in Dublin and, but like. Well, legal background, Dublin. Yeah, so what though? Um, so what? It's like my mother is from Mayo. My father is from Tullamore. My father was the first manager of the credit union in Tullamore. My mother is from East Mayo and her brother has a farm there, you know, with, with cattle and so on. I mean, like I come from all of Ireland. I trained as a solicitor in Cork. Some of my closest pals in the political, in the parliamentary party are from the wild, you know. from Have you been to the ploughing? No, I've not been to the ploughing and that's now, that might be going too far, but. <laughs> well. <laughs> no, I've not been to the ploughing. No. And it's a bit of a joke. But it's, no, I've it's never ba- been to the ploughing. Ba- I think no. it's back in Rathanesca again, uh, where I spent <laughs> well, the look, first five sure. years of Martin my Hayden, life. I'd love to see you down there. Martin, I'm sure. Maybe Martin Hayden took me down to a Chagas facility down in Trim and I learned a huge amount, as he knows, um, about multi-species swards or swades and different types of, you know, finishing cattle and all of the different, the, the technology around what was going on. And I really genuinely am interested. But I'd, look, I don't. I come from Dunley it's not a strong agricultural you know it's not the centre of agriculture um, but that doesn't mean that I don't 
it doesn't mean that I live only in Dunleary. And, and you've asked me there about my relationships across the bar, political party. And Michael Ring and Brendan Griffin and myself would be great pals. So... And you I don't know get, what you're trying to say. No, I'm, I'm not trying to say anything. I'm trying to ask. I'm, I suppose I'm wondering how you would set about reassuring the rural uh, side or strand of Fine Gael, which is quite strong. We saw that in the last party leader election. Simon Coveney uh, managed to, to garner that, but not enough to get full support in the, in the parliamentary party to become leader. But I'm not engaged in that. I'm simply trying to do my job. I'm trying to do my job um, as a TD for Dunleary, as Minister of State in the Department of Finance, and to do work with my party colleagues in every way that I can. Um, so uh, what 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 more can I do at the moment? I'm not I'm not engaged in any sort of competition. And who knows what the future holds for any of us. Jennifer Carroll McNeil, TD for Dunleary, Minister of State at the Department of Finance, thank you so much indeed for coming to talk to us. Thank you. To hear more in this series, go to rte.ie forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.